And as always, uh, our notes, our updated notes through page five of this uh, series are to be found on our church website under documents. If you look under my name, it'll, it'll have the first century church. And uh, if you want any extra copies or if you're online and would like to see a copy of the notes that we have, uh, you can find it there under that title. But it's uh, 9.30 and we are going to begin right on schedule and um, get into the word. Let's pray, shall we, as we come to the scriptures. Father, once again, it is an immense privilege that we have to come to your word, to know and to understand what it teaches, to be able to say exactly what it says, to know that these are your words, not ours, and we don't have to make anything up. We simply have to find what you've said on a subject and make sure we keep it in context and make sure it belongs to us and not to someone else like Israel. And then, Father, as we look at it in detail and take it literally, we can see what we should, we should know. And there are going to be many problems that we won't have because we've taken your word literally. And, Father, may we always keep that in mind, that taking your word literally will save us a lot of problems and keep us from a lot of errors. Father, thank you for this time now, and thank you for the morning service that will follow, and for the new members' class as well at this meeting. We just ask that you would be the, the Holy Spirit would be the teacher and guide in all of these things. We ask in our Savior's name, Amen. Okay, yeah, there, Matt, Matt, <laughs> there are notes in the back if you didn't get them. There are some extras back there. Okay. Okay, now in our ongoing series of uh, problems we don't have when we take Scripture literally. We began last week, and uh, I did not know we were going. I was going to be back this week. I thought it would be next month, but uh, due to some of the schedule changes and the new members' class, there was a slot opening, and so either Courtney was going to do two classes, uh, or do Sunday school and the morning service. Unless she was going to do that, I was going to be back. So, uh, so here I am, and I'm glad to be back. So in our ongoing series, then, of problems we don't have when we take Scripture literally, we began last week to look at the early church at the end of the first century. And I think probably many of us as believers, maybe most of us, maybe even all of us took for granted that all was well with the early church, that everything went well, that everybody got along, there weren't a lot of doctrinal problems. After all, you didn't have all these long years of Christian tradition that have replaced scripture. Uh, There's a lot of tradition within Christianity in the area of doctrine that uh, keeps people from learning what scripture really says. The classic example, of course, is John 3.16. I don't think there's a single one of us here that haven't heard that quoted as the verse of salvation. And it really isn't, because if you look at what it says, it says, for or because God so loved the world. It's explaining something. But the early church didn't have to face that kind of problem, but we today do have that hanging over our heads so much. And the other thing they didn't have, of course, they didn't have denominations, they didn't have social media and everything else to spread trends and start rumors and gossip. Uh, So you'd think, well, they didn't have all of the the impediments that we do. But, of course, the biggest impediment we have is ourselves, our old nature. As Pogo once said in uh, Walt Kelly's script, I think, what's the name of the script was? Anyhow, Pogo once said, we've met the enemy and he's us. What's that now? Was Pogo? Oh, okay. But he said famously, he said, we've met the enemy and he is us. And, and so the early church didn't need to have outside problems. They had people with old natures. And even though they were saved, they had old natures. And so as we go into scripture, we find out that, you know, they, they weren't really quite as rosy as we would have liked to think. Now, we, we're going to look in, the, in this study. We mentioned it. We'll remind you again that we're going to look at three major writings of the Apostle John. And the reason we've chosen the Apostle John is because he lived into the 90s. He lived almost to the very end. And so 
when he was writing, the things he would write as observations about the churches in his letters would be based upon what he was seeing happening in the church of that time. So we can see what it's like because we find elements of what he said. First, we're starting in Revelation. Then we're going to look at 1 John. And then we're even going to see in the Gospel of John. Actually, the Gospel of John might have the most indications of how bad the first century church had become which is surprising because you would think it would be in maybe 1 John, but it's actually probably going to be in the Gospel of John. So we began by looking at the outline of the book of Revelation, and as I mentioned, I really, really have, I love John's writings because of two reasons. One is his Greek is so simple. If I want to go back and retranslate anything, it's first-year Greek. It's very easy to do. But the other reason is, in, in the book of Revelation and in the Gospel of John and in First John, at the very beginning, he gives you an outline of what he's going to say. And in Revelation chapter 1, and we might as well turn there because we're going back to the book of Revelation, and, and we're going to spend most of our time there. But in Revelation chapter 1, I, I, it's, very, it's very nice how simple this is. In Revelation 1, you have really the outline of the book, how it's going to... No, it's, it's not uh, symmetrical the way we would think of it because uh, you're going to have the biggest part is going to be the last part. So it's not balanced. It's not three equal parts. But it's a perfect outline because Jesus speaking in Revelation 1.19 says, Write the things which you have seen, and that was the things before this, beginning back at verse 12 where he saw an image of Christ. He says, Write the things which are, and in Revelation 2 and 3, that was the churches, and then it says, write to things which shall be hereafter, or literally after these things. And that word after these things occurs, the, the two, there's two Greek words, and we talked about them, and they're in your notes. The two Greek words after these, they're translated uh, hereafter or after these things, begins again in the fourth chapter in verse 1, where it says, and, I, and after this I looked, and behold, a door was opened in heaven, and the first voice which I heard was, as it were, of a trumpet talking with me, come up hither, and I will show you things which, which must be hereafter, or if you please, after these things. So it's after the church. And so when you look at this, you realize, historically, the church is not going to be here. And in fact, you will not find the church mentioned again until some closing remarks in the 21st chapter. You will not find the church mentioned from Revelation 4 through Revelation 22 at all, because the church is not there. So this is the simplest way to show anybody that the church doesn't go into tribulation. And, it, and it's an important point. And we mentioned that last week. Now, the churches then, therefore, in, in Revelation 2 and 3 are both historic and the prophetic. And the church of, of, uh, of Ephesus was the church at the end of the first century. And so um, there are notes in the back court for today. Uh, the, the church at, at Ephesus was the church at the end of the first century. And the things that are said about it are going to reveal what the first century church was like. This was the first century church summarized in one church. Now, there were other churches, but they all tended to be like this church. This church was the one that represented what the others were like. And it shows you where the church was. And you'll see, as we go through this, it's probably a lot different than what we might have expected. It's surprising. In some ways, it's surprising to me, and, and I've looked at this a number of times, but I'm always surprised. So, we also mentioned one other thing, and we'll get started, and that is that as you go through here, in all seven of these churches, you can see it in the King James, where the, Christ is talking to the messenger, who was obviously not a, not a spirit being. Spirit beings don't preach in churches, and they don't have any responsibility to do things in churches, but pastors do. 
And the remarks of all in all seven of these churches were given to the pastor because it shows you something about the pastor. It shows you that he's the one that's supposed to set the example. He's the one that's supposed to be the type that the people can follow. And if he's if he is messed up, then he's going to lead the church in the wrong direction. And and uh, I don't think you'll very often see a church that has a pastor that is all goofed up in his doctrine and is carnal. You're not going to very often find a church that's going to be spiritual when the pastor's carnal. It just doesn't usually happen. It could, but I have never heard of it happening. And you could assume just the opposite. Now. We want to go back and start looking at detail what was true of this church because you see in the relation, we'll start off by seeing what the relation of the pastor was. What was he himself really like overall? And you see that in the first two verses of Revelation 2. Unto the angel of the church of Ephesus write, These things says he that holds the seven stars in his right hand who walks in the midst of the seven golden candlesticks. I know your works and thy labor and thy patience, and how thou canst not bear them that are evil, and thou hast tried them which say they are apostles, and are not, and have found them liars. Pretty strong words there. But uh, we're going to see, by the way, that though I would be prone to think, and you might be prone to think, that when Christ is speaking to the pastor, it's going to all be negative. But actually, there's going to be a lot more positive than negative. But the one thing that's going to be negative is going to be the biggest problem that's going to undo all the good things. And that's a shame because one little bad thing will take everything down. And we'll see that probably next time we speak, but maybe we'll get close to it today. Now, what Christ says to these individuals, when you look at that, he's, why would Jesus say, stop and think for a moment, these things says he that holds the seven stars in his right hand, who walks in the midst of the seven golden candlesticks. Why would he be saying that to the pastor? Now, the pastor should know that. But when you say something like that, why would you repeat something like that to a man who probably already knows it? Probably because he's forgotten about it. He's overlooking it. He's not really paying attention to it. And that word for holdeth, when it says holdeth, it means to grasp something so firmly that one is in control of it. That's my definition. And you can see that. If you want to see how that's used that way, I'll give you one example. If you look back to Matthew chapter uh, 12, you can see a good illustration that that's how this word is used. And it, it, uh, it, it's a very strong word. It's, it's a word that it was used, I believe, when they arrested Christ. They used this word. They took hold of him, and they had him in control. He wasn't going to get away from them when they got him. But in, Revel- in Matthew chapter 12, when Christ was getting ready to heal a man on the Sabbath, he was making a point with them that uh, you, do things, you do things on the Sabbath and it's not wrong. Why should healing be wrong on the Sabbath? And verse 11, he says this, And he, Jesus, said unto them, that was the leaders of the synagogue, What, uh, what man shall there be among you that shall have one sheep, and if it fall into a pit on the Sabbath day, will he not lay hold on it and lift it out? Well, this is the third time in my life this has happened. Someone's called me, and I did not remember to mute my phone. Uh, Well, fortunately, it was not a call I needed to take. It was a reminder I had a prescription ready. And if you don't get in, with Walgreens, if you don't get in, the minute you get that, they'll call you, they'll text you, they'll call you, they'll text you. Every day you'll get a call. And I forgot to mute my phone. So that's the third. So, Courtney, you can say now, that's the third time that's happened to me when I've been speaking. And it's always been in the middle of something in church. It's never been when I was sitting in the back. Well, anyway, so when you look in Matthew 12, 11, you can see that Jesus said, this animal in a pit, you lay hold on it. 
well, when, you, when somebody's picking an animal out of a pit, he's going to get a hold of it, and he's going to have firm control of it. You can see that's what it means. And that's what it means in, Matthew, in Revelation chapter uh, 2, when Jesus said, I hold, he said, I hold the seven stars in, in my right hand. Now, what would that tell the pastor? What should that remind the pastor? Who's really got control of him? You know, one of the things that, that I used to, and Courtney might even remember this, I used to tell all the guys in seminary one verse of don't think that you're a hot shot. Don't forget that, you, that you're not everything that you think you might be. I, I used to quote to them, and uh, Courtney, you probably remember 1 Corinthians 4, 7. There's a verse, and you might write this in by, by holdeth in here, just as, a remember, uh, just as a reminder, because I think what is involved here is that the pastor sometimes... We think by virtue of education, we know, we know a lot. We have abilities to think things. We can answer questions. And it can, like anybody that's an expert, it can go to their head. You can think, hey, you know, I'm really, I'm really something. Well, here's what I remind myself of and I reminded others of, and it's a good reminder for anybody that knows the truth when they share it with someone else. Paul says, for who makes you to differ one from another? And what do you have that you did not receive? Now, if you did receive it, why do, you, why do you glory as though you had not received it? Now, I'm talking, it's talking about what you know. If I know the things that I know, did I, did I get them myself or were they given to me? Well, if they were given to me, if I'm humble and if I'm reasonable and logical, I'm going to recognize that and it's not going to go to my head. Is it possible that it, that it does? Well, I can, uh, there's one illustration that shows what, it, what can happen. There's a pastor online who, on whose website. Now, I didn't go there uh, originally, but I think I did go there, and a friend of mine told me about it. This one pastor's website, they had a, on, on his website, they had a video that showed you his office, and you could look around and see his library. Too, so you could be impressed with all the books that he had in his library. You know, you could have a lot of books in your library. You can buy books. Does that mean you know anything? Does that mean you've used them? If just buying books was a good education, I could have saved a lot of money by just buying books instead of going to seminary. But it doesn't make that much difference. It really doesn't. Uh, by the way, uh, Troy, were there, are, were there any notes left back there? There should be from today. Yeah, there may be still some left. And if there aren't, uh, you can always run copies of them. Um, okay, so we're on, we're on page we're on page three and. Uh, so we're saying that the pastor can overlook this. Now, if he overlooks the fact that uh, he's really not in charge of everything, it's really the Lord that's holding him up and keeping him there. If he's not, if he loses uh, sight of that, it might change how he, drill, uh, how he deals with the church. You know, there are pastors who lord it over their church. Now, you know what that means. There are, there are pastors who they expect to be treated almost as though they're royalty. There was one book I read. It was a, it was a novel and it was actually really well written, and it was pretty good. And it had this one pastor. They called him the general. The reason they called him the general was because he was lording it over the people. When he said happen, was going to happen. And, it, of course, it cost, it cost him great misery in his own life. And he had some real problems and wound up going out of the ministry, only to be restored a few years later. And it's quite a story. But it just shows that it illustrated for me that this does happen, that there are men who get in the pulpit and they say something is so, and uh, there was one man that I, that I used to listen to, uh, a man named Jack Howell. Some of you may have heard of him. He would get up and t- say something, and if it contradicted your scripture, he'd say, no, you listen to me. You listen to me. He would actually say that. And he would 
change what Scripture said. And he'd say, you listen to me. And so he got to the point where he was lording it over the people. He was really going, I mean, he'd forgotten something. And, of course, that man had a lot, number of other problems beside that. Now, also what happens, too, is if the pastor gets to that point where he overlooks things, today you see the idea of the mega church. How many times do you see a church where the pastor wants to build a big church? Now, there may be all kinds of reasons for it, but underneath it all, I kind of wonder if it isn't so that the pastor can say, look what I did. Look what God used me to do. It wouldn't happen if God hadn't put me here to do it. And so it's real easy to lose sight of the fact of who holds people. That's why I, the other verse, of course, in, in Acts chapter 20, Paul told the Ephesians, was, take heed to yourselves and to the church. Take heed to yourself. You watch yourself first. But I like 1 Corinthians 4, 7. It's a reminder of what do you have that you didn't receive. Every, every bit of knowledge that you and I have as a believer, someone had to teach it. And if we learned it and it was from the Bible, then the Holy Spirit had to open our eyes to it and had to make us able to see it. And so if I had to be taught and I didn't get it on my own, then I have no business strutting around like I'm a smart, like I'm a smart guy. You know, I may be a wiseacre when it comes to humor, but I'm not when it comes to scripture and knowledge here. Now, the other thing I think you see here is when it says that when Christ said to the pastor that he walked in the midst of the, the seven golden candlesticks. You know, I'm, rem- I'm reminded of something that happened in 1 Corinthians 5. Go, hold your finger in Revelation 2 and go back to 1 Corinthians 5 for just, just a moment. And we, we've seen this. Pastors talked about this. And this is one of those things that you wonder, how could this happen? Well, here's another picture of the early church even before the end of the first century. This is the early church well, right around the middle of the first century. What kind of things were happening? 1 Corinthians chapter 5, verses 1 and 2. It is commonly reported that there is fornication among you, and such fornication is not so much as named among the Gentiles, that one should have his father's wife. It isn't even named among the Gentiles. They don't even do this. And you are puffed up and have not mourned that he that has done this deed might be taken away from among you. Sometimes pastors can be guilty of having problems in the church that they just don't want to pay attention to. They just kind of overlook and pretend it's not there. Because if you're not paying attention to it and you don't think it's there, well, it's just like it's not there. And honestly, I've seen it happen, and I think probably many of you have been in churches where you've seen a problem that existed that no one wanted to deal with. Maybe they were afraid if they dealt with it, they'd lose members. That's usually, the, that's usually what happens. They're afraid if they face up to this issue where there's a problem in this area, they're going to lose members over it. And, of course, they lose members, they're going to lose giving, and, of course, a lot of guys are only in it for the money. Well, it's, it's a sad truth. So, but it, it's a reminder that if Christ walks in the midst of the church, he knows what's going on. Even if the pastor doesn't know what's going on, and sometimes the pastor legitimately doesn't know because we're, we're not, none of us are that smart that we know everything. And we can't be everywhere. And so, but the Lord knows what's going on in the, middle, in the church at all times. Now, that reminds us of something very important, too. If you go to 1 Peter chapter 5, and we're coming back to Revelation, but in 1 Peter chapter 5, uh, the pastor is supposed to be really involved with the church. Now, he may not know every single thing that's going on in the church, but the indication in 1 Peter chapter 5 is that he's aware enough because he should be leading the way. So he should know what's going on because he's leading the way, and he should know this is what's happening. I'm doing this. This is what they're supposed to be following. In 1 Peter 5, verses 1, 2, and 3, these are important words for a pastor, and, and uh, 
they're words that people should expect from a pastor. If, if you ever have a pastor that doesn't do this, then you have a problem that needs to be dealt with. The elders which are among you, I exhort, who am also an elder and a witness of the sufferings of Christ, and also a partaker of the glory that shall be revealed, feed or shepherd the flock which is among you, taking the oversight not by constraint but willingly, not for filthy lucre, ooh, there's a good one for you, but, but of a ready mind, neither as being lords over the heritage. Remember we said, just talked about that? To being lord, but being in samples. It's the word that means types. It's something that can be duplicated. It's, it's, it's like a mold that you can duplicate. In other words, he's supposed to be an example of what is true. And if he's not, then you don't follow him. You know, there's a lot of people that follow a pastor even when he's wrong, and maybe they even know it, but they still follow him. Well, he's supposed to do that. So, yeah. Uh, question? I'm sorry. Uh, oh. I just <laughs> he's calling out names. <laughs> calling out names, sir. Huh? Well, there, there, uh, there, there are, you know, and it's a sad thing, but there are, there are pastors that, that will have people follow them that, that they're wrong, and the people will follow them, and, that, and that's a shame, but it does happen. It does happen, and it, it's why it's so important that Christ speaks to the pastor, because if he's, he's speaking to the pastor, if there's a problem, the root cause of the problems in the church quite often are the pastor. I hate to say that because I've been a pastor, and, and I know what it feels like, but a lot of times the root causes, they, in my case, in my church problems, they were, they, I, they were my fault because I didn't catch them, I didn't see them, or I didn't deal with them. The reason I call his name out is because I've actually talked to people that follow him, and they've said to me directly, you know he doesn't say everything that's true, but he makes me feel good. <laughs> uh, so... One of our members just pointed out that this that he knew of people that followed a man and said they followed him because he made them feel good, even though they knew he wasn't exactly right. So it does happen. It really does happen. And a pastor is supposed to be an example. And there's a passage in Hebrews 13 that we should deal with sometime that, that really explains it very well. And, of course, that's Paul's writings. But so... We said then that Christ's words, that he's in the midst of the church, means he knows what is going on in the church, even if the pastor doesn't, even if he's not paying attention and doesn't see it. Now, when we get to the, the pastor's works, it's going to start talking about his, what he does, and he's going to commend the pastor. And when you get through this, you'll wonder, before we get to the one thing he did wrong, you'll wonder, well, why was this church, why did this church have problems? This guy was doing everything right. He was doing a lot of things right. And so uh, when you read these, these things to the pastor in the seven churches, some of them, the, the commendation is so good, you'd wonder, well, why is there a problem? What was the problem? Well, you'll find that there was something that counterbalanced against, and the one truth that's going to counterbalance against this is the use of love. We'll see that. You already know that from the fourth, fourth verse. There was going to be a misuse of love. It's going to outweigh everything else. And boy, I'll tell you, if nothing else shows you the importance of love one another, in, first, in John 4, 13, when Jesus said in verse 34, a new commandment I give unto you, that you love one another just like I've loved you. If there's one place that shows you how important it is, this is a good place to show it. Because all the good things this pastor did are going to be wiped out by the fact that he did not use love like he should have. And he's going to do a lot of things right. He's going to do a lot of things right, and I would be glad to, to have these things said about me, except for verse 4. I wouldn't want to have that, but you notice what he says. He said, uh, he, he, first of all, he starts off by, by complimenting him on his diligence, and it's really, this is kind of a compliment. He says, I know thy works and thy labor and thy patience. Now, he's not, 
He is not condemning him. He says, I know thy works. It's not that he's saying you're doing terrible things because he doesn't indicate that in the context. He doesn't say anything at all negative until you get to verse 4. Then he says, nevertheless, now you know there's going to be a change. That nevertheless tells you it's a change. So up to that point, everything is positive. So this man had works. It's not a rebuke. And by the way, that word for works at labor, he says, I know thy works and thy labor. That word for labor, you'll notice on the top of page 4, we give, you the, we give you the Greek word and uh, the Strong's number. If you use Esword, you can go and see where this word is used, and you can see uh, what it means. And I like the, the, the definition that uh, you get out of uh, Thayer's lexicon. It's you work, working to the point of exhaustion. Now, this, this is something that sometimes I think we don't see unless we've been involved in a pastorate or we are pastor's wife or good friend. You don't see all the labor that goes into being a pastor. You know, a lot of times I have, from talking to unsaved people, and when I was in a pastor, I worked at a gas station to support it because it was a small church and I had to get the money. And when the subject came up, they, not knowing I was a pastor, had the impression, well, these guys all, they, they play golf three or four days a week, and they've talked to some of their church members with money, trying to make sure they get money in the offering. And they maybe spend 15, 20 minutes writing up a sermon or getting, opening the mail to get a sermon from a sermon service. I had a sermon service mail me sermons one time. I didn't even ask for them. I started mailing them to me. And I looked at them, and I said, huh, I wonder what I would use these for because I sure wouldn't use them in my church. They were just so shallow and superficial. And so that's what a lot of people think. What, 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 is not, what you don't always realize is that a, as a pastor, when he spends time in the Word, you can spend 20, 30, 40 hours going through things, and you can get involved. And I've done this myself. And I know Pastor Kevin has done it, and I know Pastor Dave has done it, and a lot of my friends have. You can spend five, six hours on a single word going through all the places used to try and get a definitive meaning because you just want to be able to say, this is what this word means in this context. And we put a lot of work into these things. And so I'm not saying that we should go up and pat the pastor on the back and, and tell him he needs a good day off for good behavior. I know when I was in the ministry, I would have liked to have a day off for good behavior, but my wife will tell you that it was so I could learn good behavior, not because I had it. But, but no, I'm not saying that because we, we, you know, we should be feeling sorry for the pastor or anything, but just as a recognition that in the ministry you work hard, and this man is commended because he worked to the point of exhaustion. Now, that doesn't sound to me like a bad thing. It sounds to me like this man was diligent about taking care of his flock. Now, that seems strange given the fact that maybe he didn't know or wasn't paying enough attention to what goes in the flock. And that's a, that's a pitfall some men get into. We get so involved in the study of the book that we don't always pay attention to what the people are doing. And, and it's, it's, it's a difficult balance. And uh, Courtney has been through seminary, and he knows what I'm talking about. It's a hard balance to pay attention to the people and see what their needs are and yet find the time for the word. That's why it's hard, because you have to balance both. And uh, sometimes you have to do some extra teaching outside your normal teaching. People call you up on the phone and have questions. And you can spend time that, you know, you can spend a lot of time sometimes. Now, I enjoyed it. I always enjoyed getting asked questions. But then I guess it's because I've been accused of being long-winded. <laughs> more, than, more than once or twice, maybe. I even have a friend that I write, he write, asks me questions, and I, I'll send him emails. And I write real long answers to him. And I said, I'm not only long-winded, I'm long-worded. So, and my notes may bear that out too. Now, so, and the fact that Christ is going to repeat those things 
In verse 3, he says, You have borne and had patience for my name's sake, and you've labored and not fainted. He mentions again that they've labored. So you can see that it's, it's mentioned twice. And this is, this is definitely emphasizing the fact this man was a student of the book. He spent time studying. And he has some maturity that comes from it. You don't get maturity by not studying the book as a pastor and by not using what you know. Maturity doesn't come just because you got a seminary degree. I wish it did because I know a lot of guys who went to seminary that went out of seminary and gave up what they taught and went back to the other stuff they knew and they never grew up spiritually and they're today doing things that are just a waste of their time. But so Jesus is also is going to commend this man for his maturity. Now he said, and you see it here, but you might not know it. He says, you have, it says, I know your works, your labor, and your patience. Now, that word for patience is not the word you might think. This is not the word that's part of the fruit of the Holy Spirit. This is a word that means it's really more the idea of endurance. And I, I think it's something that we should count as being endurance. Now, patience, as we know it, comes from the fruit of the Holy Spirit. And that's not the word that is used here. So if you ask God for patience, be sure that you're asking, if you're asking for God for patience, then you need to be spiritual to have it because patience is part of the fruit of the Holy Spirit. If you're asking for endurance, which is a lot of times when we ask for patience, we're asking for endurance. Be careful because you know where endurance comes from? Well, keep your finger here and let's go back to Romans chapter 5. I remember there was a kids program once where this one one fellow was complaining to to his friend that he needed to have patience so he asked God for patience and he started having all kinds of trouble and toward the end the guy said in a very plaintive voice I'm not going to ask the Lord for patience again <laughs> because he got, the, he got the message what do we say about patience this, this word for endurance it's well let's begin reading in Romans chapter 5 verse 1 therefore being justified by faith we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ by whom we also we have access by faith into this grace wherein we stand and rejoice in the hope of the glory of God. And not only so, but we glory in tribulations, our afflictions, knowing that tribulation or affliction works patience. That's your word. That's the word for endurance. This, this type of this endurance, this ability to abide under things, doesn't come from the fruit of the Holy Spirit. Now, that might seem as a surprise. No, it comes, endurance, it comes as you learn to bear up under things. Now, it, it's real easy to, to do well when things aren't going right. But if you have to be under an adverse circumstance, well, Pastor Kevin, for example, for years he worked with FedEx as he was a pastor. Now, was that easy? No, that was, the, that was an affliction. It really was an affliction. He had to endure. He had to bear up underneath that. And if you were to ask him, I'll bet you he would admit that that did him some good in some ways. It taught him some things. And he definitely learned endurance. And, but we learn it by suffering. And that's why be careful when you ask the Lord for patience because you're probably asking for this word. And see what it says here? Patience and tribulation works patience or endurance. So if you ask for patience the way most of us really mean it, you're asking for affliction. And so be careful about that. I'm not saying you shouldn't do it, but I'm just saying you better be aware of what you're asking for. So when tri- so over time, tribulation works patience. Now that patience, if you look on down through here, look what it goes on to say. In, in verse, uh, let's see. Okay, and uh, verse 4, and patience, experience. So tribulation works endurance. Endurance works experience. Experience works hope. 
Now, when you see that, uh, patients that see patients with experience, that experience is approved. It's a word that we have that, that is normally, and it's in our notes, you can see it in a point B. It's an approved character, and it's, it's a Greek word that means something that's tested and, and approved. It's an approved character. In other words, you've passed the test. You've been afflicted. You've done the right things and responded, and you have become more mature. You have become one who can endure. You have endurance, which means you have a stamped out character that's approved. In other, words, in other words, maturity doesn't always come overnight. There's some things that you just have to experience to get to a certain level of maturity. Now, why that's important is because when you come back to Revelation chapter 2, it says, I know your patience. So this man had been through a lot of things. We're not told what he'd gone through, but we do know that the early church suffered a lot of persecution. And at Ephesus, there were some difficulties uh, over the goddess Diana, if you remember in Acts, the, the, the wonderful meeting they had where the whole crowd, I'd love to have been there and heard those people for two hours solid. The people cried out with one voice, great is Diana of the Ephesians. That had been something to be there, listen to that. And it was all misunderstanding and there was persecution that came because they thought something about Paul that wasn't true. He wasn't saying anything about Diana, he was just teaching about Christ. But that was, that was affliction. So, this man had some maturity, and he also had some discernment. Now, this goes along with maturity quite often. And, and you see that in the fact it says, uh, in, it says, thou hast, let's see, uh, and how you cannot bear them which are evil and have tried them which say they're apostles and are not and found them liars. Thee had, you cannot bear them that are evil. You can't bear those that are evil. And you've tried them, the false apostles, now, it takes a certain amount of knowledge to be able to figure those false apostles out because they could sound an awful lot like the real thing. And they could fool a lot of people, but they couldn't fool this guy. He tried them. Now, what's interesting here is it says you cannot bear them. Now, you'll notice in our notes under point C for his discernment, that word bear or bastizo, and it's G941, and you can look that up in, 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 uh, in your e-sort if you have it. And you can see it means to carry something, but it also involves the emotional reserve to endure something mentally. And it, uh, it, you can see that. It's used that way quite a few times. If you look back at John chapter 16, you'll see a perfect example of this. And, and it tells you that, yeah, this word does mean, this bear does mean that you, have to, you, that you may not have the emotional reserve in your, in, to mentally handle something. Because Jesus said something to his disciples in the upper room that uh, probably was something of an eye-opener to them, but they were going to have the Holy Spirit to teach them, ultimately. In verse 12 of John 16, I have many things to say unto you, but you cannot bear them now. You can't bear them now. Remember, back in the 14th chapter, he said, let not your heart be troubled. He said, stop letting your heart be troubled. And he's going to mention throughout here, at least one more time, that they were, over, they were overloaded with grief. They did not have any emotional reserve left to take anything more. So Jesus said, I've got more to say to you, but you can't bear them now. In other words, you don't have the emotional reserve to handle these things. Now, and it's also used in Acts 15. And that's, uh, well, let's take a look there. That's one I, I like this one in Acts 15. This tells you something. The, the decision the church council made in Acts 15 that James made, he, didn't listen to, he did not listen to Peter. 
because he's not going to conclude that the Jews shouldn't be under the law. He's going to say only the Gentiles as Christians didn't need to keep the law in the early church. Had he listened to what Paul said, or what Peter said, his, his conclusion might have been different. Because beginning at verse uh, 7 of Acts 15, this is the first church council. And when there had been much disputing, Peter rose up and said unto them, said unto them Men and brethren, you know, that, you know how that a good while ago God made choice among us that the Gentiles by my mouth should hear the word of the gospel and believe. And God, which knows the hearts, gave, gave them witness, giving, giving them the Holy Spirit, even as he did us. And he put no difference between us and them, purifying their hearts by faith. Now, therefore, why do you tempt God? to put a yoke on the neck of our disciples, which neither we nor our fathers were able to bear. They weren't able to bear. They didn't have the mental reserves to handle all the things the law required of them. Now, you'll notice, it's the, the, you'll notice it says, Why tempt you, God, to, to put a, a yoke on the neck of our disciples that neither we nor our fathers were able, were able. Past tense. You see that? Were able. Words are very important. We were not able to bear it. What is Peter saying there? We're not bearing it now. Why? Why are we not bearing it now? Because we're not under it anymore. What he was saying, almost directly, and clear enough to be understood, is we're not under the law because we weren't able to handle it back there. We didn't have the emotional reserve to do those things. You look at all the requirements of the law and all the things they had to do. Read through it. It, it was not a cakewalk for those people. And that law was only given to, to, be, to be a punishment to them, to, be a, to, bring, to show them what they were really like when they said, all the Lord has said we will do in Exodus 19. And God says, okay, you want to have it that way, boys? Here it is. Here's everything that you have to do. And it made them miserable. And they were not able to bear it. They didn't have the emotional reserve. And if you think that's not true, just look at, through the Gospels at the Pharisees and the Sadducees, these law keepers. There's one thing you can say about them. Courtney, now correct me if I'm wrong. Have you ever seen a passage in there where any of those were happy, those individuals? Did they ever show happiness or did they always show anger and contempt and frustration? Brother Courtney, I know, is going through this too because he's doing, he's doing some in Acts. I know he's done some of this. And so these were unhappy men. Why? Because they weren't able to bear. They had such a load to carry. And it was unrelenting seven days a week. And there were even sins of ignorance. Just imagine if you had just that one. If we just threw that one extra thing in there. They had sins of ignorance. Just imagine if you had to go back and say, Now, wait a minute. Did I do something this week I shouldn't have done? And I didn't even know I did it? It would not be much fun. Some of us would be quite busy. Especially some of us people that are a little more ornery than others. No, I'm not admitting anything now. But... I'm looking at my daughter back there, and I was yeah. thinking that. So, now, so what I see in here is what this is telling me is that this pastor was not willing to put up with. He didn't have the reserve. He wasn't willing to put up with. I would trans, you know, I would take this this word to have the idea. You can't put up with them. You can paraphrase. You can't bear those that are evil. He couldn't put up with those that were evil. Now, you know, one thing I don't like today is that they're trying to tell the church and the Christian that we should be accepting of all sorts of things. That we should be accepting of this, accepting of that. We should be accepting of the alphabet people, you know, A, B, L, B, D, Q, T, S, R, P, W, X, Y, Z, and a few other letters, and throw in some Greek if you want to, and Hebrew as well. Uh, should we be doing that? Well, this guy couldn't put up with what was evil. Now, please remember, 
That word for evil is one that's very familiar. It's kakos. But let me give you one reference. If you ever want to show to someone that this word just means something it lacks in character, it may or may not be wrong. Because some of these false teachers that were teaching evil were not teaching things that were openly in themselves evil, but they replaced something that was good with something that was innocent looking but not right. Now, if you go back to Luke chapter 16, I want you to see this one verse, and you can see that what evil really means is something it lacks in character. And I don't have to make it up. I like that. I always like it when I don't have to defend myself, other than saying, Scripture says it, here it is. But in Luke chapter 16, in the story of the rich man and Lazarus, the beggar, there's something said that uh, you might just have skipped over and not noticed. But in the 25th verse... When the man, the rich man is crying out in hell, he can see Abraham and he can see Lazarus in his bosom and he wants Lazarus to come put some water on the tip of his tongue. And so Abraham says, well, uh, he said this to him. He said, verse 25, but Abraham said, son, remember you in your lifetime received your good things and likewise Lazarus, evil things. But now he's comforted and you're tormented. Evil things. Now, evil, there's your same word. But if you look back in context, did he receive sinful things, nasty, rotten things in his life? Well, if you go back, starting at verse 19, you find out the rich man was clothed in purple and fine linen, and he fared sumptuously, but, the La- but Lazarus was laid at the gate, he was a beggar, and he just would have loved to have the crumbs that fell from his table. And he was covered with sores. Those are things that lacked in character. He should have been fed from that. That rich man should have taken him in. He could have easily done it. He should have gotten the medical attention. He probably could have afforded it easily. These, what happened to this man, the things that he got were lacking in character. So if you want to know what that word means, here's a good illustration. It means to lack in character. And it doesn't have to be something that's overtly wrong. Now, you can really, you can see that very, very well when you consider, uh, well, we're skipping ahead a little bit. Uh, the church, well, you can see that, and, and we'll talk in a moment about uh, Christ's temptation. But I believe, as you look at this, this evil refers to these false apostles. And back in Revelation, you cannot endure evil. You've tried them as say they're apostles. So it's the evil is the apostles and what they're teaching. What they were teaching lacked in character. Now, they may have been nice guys. They may have been teaching something that sounded okay, that it wasn't wrong. If you, well, you had Judaizers going around saying you need to keep the law. Was the law evil? Was the law inherently bad? No. But it lacks in character when you look at what grace has. It lacks in character. It's not as good as what we have. And so if they were teaching that, that would be evil. It would be lacking in character. And this guy would not put up with it. Now, in Titus chapter 3, verse 10, there's something that I think is important. The idea of tolerance... I know that people say tolerance, and I know I could be called a bigot and a closed-minded, narrow-minded person. Well, if the unsaved call me this and the scholars call me this, that's only because they're unsaved and they don't know the Bible. And if God says well, I should do something, I don't care what the world thinks. You know, really, we is, that's one of the big pitfalls for a lot of men in the ministry and a lot of men that are educated, is they're so worried about what they might think out there and the names they might call us that we'll back away from things. You know what? They can call me anything they want to. Just don't call me late for dinner. But they can call me anything else. Not late for dinner. But in in, uh, Titus chapter 3, beginning at verse 9, you see that Paul did not teach tolerance of of fake doctrine or or foolish doctrine. He didn't put up with some of those things. He said in verse 9, 
But foolish questions and genealogies and contentions and strivings about uh, void foolish questions and genealogies and contentions and strivings about the law, for they are unprofitable and vain. A man that is a heretic after the first and second admonition reject. <gasps> you mean you'd put a, you'd put somebody out of the church and you wouldn't try and understand them and pat them on the back and say, "Well, that's okay. We'll, we'll help you along the way." Like they did in 1 Corinthians 5 with that man that was living with his, with his father's wife. I'm sure they said, well, we understand. We're going to be loving. What did Paul say here? The guy's a heretic. Reject him. Get rid of him. Now, that's what this man was doing here. I believe that this, when you look at, this is a commendation for this man because he did the right thing. He wouldn't put up with those that were evil. Now, it says, and, and uh, well, we're going to have to go on just a little bit. I don't want to stop here because we hit a point that's important. The discernment, that the, point number six on page four, the discernment that the Ephesian pastor uh, had shows in the fact he, quote-unquote, tried false apostles. Now, the word for, that, that you have here, tried, it's a word that means to test something thoroughly that looks for a point of vulnerability. And it's, it's the word that's used with temptation of Christ. If you have somebody that hasn't eaten in 40 days and you tempt him with bread, would you say that's a thorough test? That would be an understatement. This word means to test something thoroughly. Now, it is usually a word that is translated as tempt. And most people tend to understand temptation or this word as a solicitation to evil. But that is not what it means. Now, uh, we're going to stop at this point, but I want you to see this one thing, and we're going, to be, we're going to stop at the bottom of page four. But I want you to see something. When you see temptation, it'll help you understand it. Temptation is not necessarily a solicitation to do something as wicked, rotten, bad. Look what it says in the book of James. It says something here that it, uh, if, it, if James adds some words to something, it's because what he's describing doesn't include those words. If you have to add adjectives to something, it shows that that thing you're describing doesn't have that quality. What am I saying? Look what it says in James chapter 1. And let's read verse 12. It says, Blessed is the man that endures temptation. Same word we're looking at. For when he is tried, he shall receive the crown of life, which the Lord has promised to them that love him. Let no man say when he's tempted, I am tempted of God. For God cannot be tempted with evil. So temptation doesn't necessarily mean it's a bad thing. He can't be tempted with evil. If, if temptation automatically meant, every time this word occurred, if it automatically meant that you were being tempted to do something wrong, then why would James have to, be say, would have to say tempted with evil? If it was built into the word, he wouldn't need to say that. And words mean something. So that tells me that it's a very thorough testing. And that makes perfect sense because when you remember what Jesus was tempted to do, did Satan ask Jesus to do something immoral? Did he ask him to commit adultery or fornication or idolatry? What did he tempt him to do? Things that in and of themselves were not bad. Was it wrong for a hungry man to have food? <laughs> I don't think so. No. He tempted him to do something that would have only been wrong if he had done it at the wrong time. It wasn't the time for him to have food. The angels brought him food. It wasn't the time for him to have the kingdoms of the world. He's going to get them, but not at that time. The evil was in the fact that it was something out of time. And the things he was offered were not evil. And believe me, that's going to be a source of temptation for every one of us. Have you ever been called upon to make a decision between two different things? 
Just imagine if you were a person working and you were offered a promotion in the job. Is a promotion a bad thing? <laughs> no, not if it involves more money. But let's say with that promotion, you were required to work on Sundays. Uh, did we just not change something here? Now do you see where that could be considered ultimately lacking in character? But is that, is that promotion itself evil? Is it lacking in character to get more money? Your boss thinks you're that good. He wants to give you more responsibility and more money. But you have to work on Sunday. Every Sunday. Now all of a sudden you see that that's a, that temptation, a thorough test. You have to choose between what is good and what is better. That's really a lot of our temptations is between good and better. So when you see the word temptation, it doesn't always mean that it's the work of the flesh. It doesn't always have to be that. It can be choosing things. You know, it, there's nothing wrong with having a nice home. But what if to have that nice home, you have to work 60 hours a week and start neglecting your family as a father and you don't spend time at home? Well, wait a minute now. Having that nice home suddenly became a, a problem, didn't it? became something that wasn't good. But inherently, having a nice home isn't bad. But it's what it's going to do to your life spiritually. That's, that's what temptation. Now, this man, what that tells me with, with this individual here is to test something thoroughly. This man, it said he tested them. He tempted them. He tested them thoroughly. In modern terminology, he put them through the ringer. Now, on the next page, I have a, a, a note. If you don't know what put them through the ringer come from, I think there's just a few people here that would know what ringer, where that expression uh, put them through the ringer is. And that would be in the top of page five. So really, we're going to stop at point D on the on top of page five. We'll come back to that uh, the next time we're, we're with you. Today is But uh, what this tells me is that this man, he's commended because he put these guys through the ringer. He didn't just ask them a few questions. He made sure he knew exactly what they believed. He put them through the ringer to find out what they believed. And he found they were liars. And he didn't put up with it. I'll tell you, folks, I hope the day never comes when we're willing to, for the sake of ease or convenience, to put up with something that we know is, maybe it's not quite right, but you know, he means well. Or... He's, now, he's a member of our church, and we don't want to lose another member. We don't want to lose any of our members. Or we don't want to lose somebody that gives as much money as he does. Has that ever happened in churches? I knew a church where they put up with a guy that was a very wealthy architect. And he, some of the things he did were all right. Some of the things he did were not so well. But he kind of had more control over the church than he should have. And they put up with it. Why? Because this guy was an architect, and he gave a huge amount of money to the church. So they put up with it. I hope that it ever comes and they'll do things like that here. I hope not, because that is lacking in character. It doesn't look bad on the surface, does it? Giving more money to the church doesn't look bad. But when it comes with strings attached, it can be bad. And that's what temptation is like. That's what temptation can be like. Just remember, it can be something that's innocent, but if you take it, it may have consequences that are not going to be good for your spiritual life. That's what Satan likes to do. That's what Satan likes to do, among his many other things. But we'll come back uh, next time we speak uh, to page number five, and we'll come back to uh, rejecting the latest trend in church government. And we have some things to say about this. And this is an important thing because there is a form of that that's going around today, uh, this Nicolaitanism, and we'll, we'll talk about that. And then ultimately we're going to get into the one, one thing that the pastor had that was a problem in his life that caused him a lot of difficulty.